Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Two years ago, Governor Malloy set a deadline to close the state's controversial locked facility for delinquent boys. It's the Connecticut Juvenile Training School in Middletown. Coming up, we get an update on where the plan stands. The Hartford Current's Josh Kovner will join us. His latest story raises questions about where teens will end up after January 1st, the date when the training school will no longer admit additional youth. But first, a report by the Office of Child Advocate has raised serious questions about the systems in place to protect children with intellectual and developmental disabilities. I want to welcome the child advocate, Sarah Egan, back to the show. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much, Lucy, for inviting me. Uh, you know, before we learn more about this uh, really troubling story of Matthew Tirado, again, a 17-year-old and from Hartford, we wanted to acknowledge today's the fifth anniversary since the shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown. Our thoughts are with the families and the wider community uh, impacted by this tragedy. Uh, Sarah, your thoughts on this day? Well, I'm, I thank you for, for raising that, Lucy. And I think it's really important um, right away to acknowledge um, that, that our thoughts are with uh, Sandy Hook um, and that wider community and in remembrance uh, of the lives taken um, from those families in Sandy Hook five years ago today. I did want to take the opportunity to refer any listeners to a website called mysandyhookfamily.org, which has the names and some information about the lives of the children and adults whose lives were taken that day. Um, I do think, you know, you invited me on today to talk about Matthew Tirado. Um, and, and I think what I was thinking about in preparation for today is that for me personally and professionally, um, part of what I think about when I am recognizing and acknowledging the terrible tragedy at Sandy Hook is that it is so important for us moving forward in the world to exhibit kindness, to practice humility, to practice bravery, and to display honesty. And as I was touched by what the governor said today in his op-ed, that the legacy has to include that, as the governor said, we keep fighting for the changes we wish to see in the world. Um, and I think that's really important, I know, for me to think about on a daily basis. And that is part of what the purpose of the work of the Office of the Child Advocate is. It's part of why we wrote this report about Matthew and his life. And, and the, the purpose of that report is to talk in an honest and frank way about what we need to do better for other children who are vulnerable and how we can improve the safety net for children with disabilities. Let's talk about that report again. Uh, Matthew Tirado, 10 months ago, he died, and he was 17 years old. You write in this extensive report that his death was entirely preventable. Tell us about him, and how did he die? So um, 
So Matthew is a 17-year-old boy who lived in Hartford, Connecticut um, with his family, his mother, his grandmother, and his uh, much younger sister. And he was a child identified as having autism and intellectual disability. He was nonverbal. Um, and terribly and tragically, he died on February 14th, 2017 of this year. And he died essentially from child abuse and neglect. Um, and he was a child who was known to state and local systems because of concerns that he chronically was not permitted to attend school and that he historically had been the subject of multiple child protection reports for concerns such as educational neglect, physical neglect, and physical abuse. Um, because he was known to these systems for concerns about his safety and well-being, and then ultimately died from child abuse, the Office of the Child Advocate reviewed the circumstances leading to his death to look at what happened and are there things that we must change to prevent a future tragedy. Turns out there's a, a lot of recommendations in this report. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about um, what happened to Matthew. Again, he was 17. The time of his death, he was 84 pounds. That's right. Um, Ms. Matthew's mother, um, Kateri Torado, called emergency personnel in the very early morning hours of February 14th. Um, they responded to the home. They transported Matthew to the hospital. Uh, he died very shortly thereafter. The office of the chief medical examiner found, and as we say in the report, that Matthew it, had numerous injuries in various stages of healing, including multiple broken ribs, laceration to the head, bruises and contusions, contusions on his upper body, pattern-type injuries to the upper back, and bed sore injuries on his buttocks, and that the injuries, quote, appeared to be the result of long-term abuse and neglect. He also was, as you say, Lucy, 84 pounds, and he was found to be emaciated at death. You said that uh, this abuse and neglect that Matthew experienced, um, he was known uh, to various systems. Let's talk about the specific systems that knew about Matthew Torado and his mother, these abuse and neglect um, going back to 2005. That's right. So, so what we learned when we began our investigation, which included extensive review of all of the records we could obtain about Matthew and his life, his family, his sister, his grandmother, what we learned is that um, Matthew was identified early on as a child with significant disabilities, and he began preschool in the Hartford Public Schools at age three. But that his entire life, he um, was often not in school, that there were repeated child protection concerns from 2005 to 2009 that were brought to DCF by Harvard Public Schools, the, ranging from concerns about Matthew's not coming to school, Matthew's missed 50 days of school, Matthew's myth, missed 40 days of school. Um, one of the complaints had to do with um, possible physical abuse, that Matthew came to school with bruises on his face that were covered up in makeup. Um, the report from Hartford at that time said that he had come to school with bruises before. Doesn't look like the, the district had called those prior um, concerns in, but that this time they were particularly concerned because 
um, makeup covered his face. Um, and and then there was a long period of time. In each of those investigations, child welfare would investigate. Um, the mother would deny concerns. If the child wasn't going to school, he began to go to school a bit more, and so the case would close out very quickly, um, only to usually come back again the next year. From 2010 to 2014, um, to October 2014, there were no reports, right? So that's a big gap. What we learned, and then there were five more reports between uh, October 2014 and May of 2016, all made by the Hartford Public Schools, um, this time about both Matthew and his sister um, for educational neglect and one for physical abuse of Matthew's sister. And that lull, we look at that lull, um, Lucy, from 2010 to 2014, what we learned is that for big chunks of time, Matthew wasn't in school at all, right? So people listening might find that really surprising that a child that was enrolled in school um, was not in school. There was no follow-up? So there's a couple different things that happened, right? I mean, this is really what we were digging into. So there's one period of time where Matthew was um, removed from school for more than two years. And in fact, during that period of time, his, his younger sister was enrolled in kindergarten in the same school district. And the mother um, filled out a form and that said, you know, I'm enrolling my child in kindergarten. And it said on the form, sibling information. Which, and she left it blank. And, and though Matthew had been a student in the Hartford Public Schools his whole life, that did not raise, somehow that just went unnoticed. And it was another year before Hartford called in a report about the sister. And then they said, oh boy, there's a brother. And it looks like he hasn't been in school for a couple of years. And so we say, how does that happen? Well, what happened is that Ms. Torado had said, I'm, I'm withdrawing my, ch- my child from school and, it, and I, I'm moving. And then what we asked the district is, well, did you ever receive a request for records from any other school district? No, we didn't. No, we didn't. And so there's this gap in our system where somebody says, you know, somebody who's been the subject of multiple reports for not sending kids to school, for maybe harming kids, can say, well, you know, I'm going to go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move somewhere else. And then somehow the child disappears for years. And, and that is something we really have to look at. That is not the first child we've seen that has been pulled out of the community and off the grid um, easily. Now, because there were <coughs> abuse and neglect uh, allegations uh, related to the mother, DCF had a file on this family. Can we t- walk through DCF's role in following up with this family? So, yeah. So over time, um, over, over the previous couple of decades, DCF had um, done investigations not, on, not just on M- Matthew and his family, but, but had done previous investigations related to Ms. Torado as a child um, due to concerns of, of, of um, maltreatment by, by her mother, Matthew's grandmother. Um, so as we say in the report, Matthew's grandmother had an extensive prior history with DCF. So there were old files at DCF about that. And then there were case files, as we said, from 2005 through you know, 2017. Um, and over the years, different workers work on the cases, different workers, different supervisors. So, so, and it does seem that key information over the years just didn't, it, it almost became, becomes a game of telephone, right? And key information about the family um, sort of gets translated sometimes correctly, sometimes it gets lost over time. 
one of the very striking things we found, I mean, what everybody wanted to know right away, Lucy, is how does a child who's been the subject of multiple reports, who, who at the end of his life had been out of school again for more than a year because his mother refused to send him, um, how does that case get closed, right? Well, it, it doesn't get closed out of malice. It doesn't get closed because social workers don't want to help kids. The social workers who worked on Matthew's case want to help kids. They want to help families. They've got caseloads full of children that they are trying to help. The Kate Matthews case was closed because people did not recognize the danger he was in, not because they did and, and, and were callous towards it, mm-hmm. but because they didn't recognize it. They didn't know what might happen. They didn't know the harm that he that he might face. And that's really what we're trying to explore. What are the logistical reasons people didn't know? And what are the system reasons people didn't know? And one of the things we learned is that just one of the logistical reasons is there were a lot of risk factors about this family that we were able to see when we combed through the records that the last workers and supervisors assigned to Matthew's case in 2016 and early 2017 didn't even know. They didn't know that Matthew's mother had herself been a victim of of prior maltreatment. They didn't know that Matthew had previously been alleged to be a victim of physical abuse. They didn't know that Matthew's sister, when interviewed by a DCF investigator in 2014, said that she was concerned her brother was also hit. So when this type of information gets lost, that means that, you know, when Matthew isn't seen through all of 2016, the workers and supervisors and managers assigned to his case may not have, their alarms may not have been going off the way yours and mine do, now reading it and putting it all together. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. <coughs> Sarah Egan is in studio with us. She's a state child advocate. We're talking about her office's, office's report after investigated the death of a 17-year-old Hartford boy, Matthew Tirado. He was autistic and physically abused. He'd been starved and dehydrated. He weighed just 84 pounds at the time of his death. Coming up, we're going to continue to talk about this case and the child advocate's recommendations to improve the systems in place from the school district to nonprofit providers to the Department of Children and Families. This note, we did reach out to DCF uh, for a comment for today's show. We heard nothing. Coming up, we'll hear from a parent of a child with autism as well. We want to find out, do families have enough support in their communities? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking with the state child advocate today. This week, Sarah Egan's office released its report after investigating the death of a 17-year-old teen with autism. His name was Matthew Tirado. He died from starvation, dehydration, and child abuse. His mother has been charged in his murder. As we heard, child advocate Sarah Egan explained multiple parties from Hartford Public Schools to the Department of Children and Families will find out the role of juvenile court coming up were supposed to help Toronto. How can these agencies avoid another story like Matthew's? That's what we're talking about today. You can join the conversation too, 860-275-7266. Sarah, your report is extensive. We don't have time to go through all of it. But what are some steps to move forward? Because we've identified some big gaps. So, um, yes. So one of our key findings is that the safety net for children with disabilities needs to be improved and that the various agencies, state and local, that served Matthew, and that includes every uh, system we identified, um, needs to improve their knowledge, their competence, their capacity to protect and serve children with complex and, in particular, developmental disability. And that means things as specific as 
social workers being trained to investigate allegations of child abuse and neglect that involve children with disabilities, like Matthew, who can't talk. It means that school systems who have children that are chronically absent as they develop their strategic plans to reduce chronic absenteeism, that those plans have to be competent and speak to the needs of various children, including children with disabilities and their families, and the myriad reasons that a child with a chronic disability may not be attending school, which is not always abuse and neglect, maybe fears of the parent about how the child is served. Lawyers for children. Matthew had a lawyer assigned to him. His only job was to protect Matthew. Matthew didn't know he had a lawyer. And Matthew wasn't allowed to see his lawyer through no fault of his own, and and in part through no fault of the lawyer's own. However, however, the lawyer's job was to take steps to protect Matthew. That did not happen here, right? I I wanted some clarification. I'm looking at the report. In, In January of 2017, DCF administratively closed its case on this family. How did that happen? So, you know, cases close for, you know, a couple of reasons. One, there are no safety concerns known to the family. Um, and two, there, there's a feeling that the tools to help the child and family have been exhausted. Um, and like I said before, I think Matthew's, we know why Matthew's case was closed, because people did not think that he was it, it, in harm's way. And um, as we established, that's partly because there was a lot of information that was relevant to that analysis that just didn't find its way to the last worker and supervisors. You had mentioned that he'd had multiple caseworkers, at least three by the time of his death. Have they ever seen Matthew? So, yeah. So the the mothers cut off contact with DCF in March of 2016. Um, and from that point until his death, he was not seen by a state official. He also was no longer permitted to go to school after January of 2016. He was not withdrawn from school. His mother just stopped sending him. So between uh, March of 2016 and his death in February, nobody had seen him. Um, and what we learned is that there were no well-child police visits. Um, there were no orders requested from the juvenile court uh, that would be relevant to that. Um, there was no effort to see Matthew's younger sister in school, though for a period of that time she was attending school on and off, although ultimately she was withdrawn as well. I wanted to get a parent's perspective on this conversation. Uh, joining us now is Mona Tremblay. Mona, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. You've been an advocate uh, for a long time. Uh, One of the reasons you're the mother of two uh, children (laughs) with autism. Can you walk us through your reaction to the story and this idea, this uh, uh, suggestion, recommendation from Sarah Egan that the safety net for children with disabilities, it's not strong enough? Sure. Um, Yes, I am a parent of almost 30-year-old adult twin sons with autism and intellectual disability. And um, suffice it to say that it is a, a daunting task uh, to parent children with complex special needs. Um, I think that, you know, the solitude that some caretakers have um, absolutely needs to change. I think that um, we need to do a better job uh, reaching out to families, certainly seeing children. I think one of my larger concerns is that this child went without being seen by anyone for such a long period of time. And so, um, you know, we have to be that voice for the voiceless. He didn't have a voice. Every child should have a voice. Every mother should know that there are places and resources that they can access um, without, you know, being concerned about, you know, punitive damages. So we know that people fear some of our child protection systems, but, 
you know, we need to, you know, make these families feel cared about. Um, we want to make sure that they can get service access to services that they desperately need. Um, you know, they need family-to-family support. They need respite care. Um, they need people that they can speak to on the phone uh, without condemnation. So um, it, it's a difficult uh, climate that we're living in, and, you know, it shouldn't just be the parent that's capable that can squeak the wheel that gets the help and the services that they need. Um, Sarah Egan again is in studio with us, a child advocate for the state of Connecticut. Uh, we mentioned uh, the Department of Children and Families, the Judicial Branch, uh, Hartford Public Schools. There are other uh, agencies in the state that can help families in need, including the Department of Developmental Services. Were they involved at all? Should they have been? So they they were not involved. In fact, Matthew has never referred to the Department of Developmental Services, right? And so what we know about our current serving system is that, you know, really just because of how it operates, it, it can tend to operate in silos. And we need to break down those silos to help families. We need to break down those brick walls that we run into um, to, to better serve children and families. And there are things that we can do, Lucy, right? We can provide additional training and resources for child protection workers. We can create uh, plans in schools that are cognizant and competent about this, the special needs of families who have children with complex disabilities. It is important that everybody who works with and touches the life on a regular basis of children with disabilities understand um, all the things Mona was talking about, but also the unique vulnerability of children with disabilities, such as the fact that we know that children with disabilities are abused more frequently. They are abused for longer periods of time. They are less likely to escape abuse. They are le- more likely to remain in situations that increase their vulnerability and risk of repeated abuse. And I'm reading that from Prevent Child Abuse America, Virginia chapter. These are things we can train people to understand. I mean, when we spoke to and, and, and or interviewed folks from DCF in the development of this report, what they told us is they don't receive training on the special needs of this population. They don't have training on how to specifically investigate child abuse involving children with disabilities. They don't have specific knowledge about what the resources are in the community that Mona's talking about that families need to be connected to. I sure know Ms. Toronto didn't know what those were. Now, she may not have been capable of responding to that help. We don't know that. But... But it's imperative that the the line staff and the and and the the supervisors and managers at DCF who are there to they're there because they want to help, that they have the tools that they need, and we can provide that. We can provide create training curriculums in collaboration with the Department of Developmental Services that say the the abuse division for adults with intellectual disabilities resides at DDS. Right? Let's do some cross training and say these are the things you want to look for. These are the things you can do. Let's work with some of our providers to say, geez, when we hit brick walls with families, can you come in and help us knock those walls down and engage the family in a way that's maybe different from what we're doing? So there are things we can do. We can be hopeful going forward, Lucy. I wanted to, before we run out of time, um, I wanted to ask you, because part of your report also, again, it focuses on this child, Matthew Tirado. But in terms of how easy it is uh, for a parent to get permission to keep their child at home, and what happens in terms of that follow-up, because there's more of these cases where children are kept at home and there's no follow-up from the school district, not just talking specifically about Hartford Public. Sure. So one of the things, yes, one of the things we've been looking at in this report and in other recent reports is um, why are the reasons children, what are the reasons children are not in school? 
Um, and how easy is it to remove a child from school, either at the direction of the district or of the parent? Um, and what's sort of the safety net for that? And we did find in this report that um, that there is an inadequate safety net for children who are removed from school for a variety of reasons. It's very easy. We said Ms. Tirada withdrew her child from school at one point in early in his life and said, you know, we're moving and then never moved. Right, and then enrolled another child in school. We know that she disenrolled her her youngest child to say she was homeschooling her. Right, there, there's vi- really no specific law in Connecticut around homeschooling. Mm-hmm. And while parents certainly have the right to direct the educational upbringing of their children, um, there is no <coughs> no oversight related to um, the withdrawal of children from school. And then we know separately, we've done a recent report on children who are homebound from school. Um, and, and that's a separate mechanism for, for, that we can talk more about um, that we also found, um, you know, there were a lot of kids and that, that needs more oversight as well. Um, so, you know, sometimes there are valid reasons a child cannot be in school for a short period of time, but we need to be looking at those numbers and making sure that, you know, we're outreaching to families who have children like Matthew. We're going to be heading to break in just a couple of minutes. If you're on the line waiting to ask a question, we'll try to take your call after the break. I wanted to go back to parent Mona Tremblay. Uh, Mona, you mentioned that given the climate, the the state funding issues, uh, what is your hope moving forward in terms of making sure that these, again, this safety net is uh, is strong? So I think we're getting better um, at the collaboration, and this is where my roles as parent and professional definitely intersect. Uh, We are seeing an increased collaboration among local and statewide providers that serve children to try to better serve those children and families by identifying, you know, who can do what, essentially. So while I agree that, you know, DDS was a key agency that was missing in this case, and I think they could have been um, very influential um, in positive ways for this child and his family, I think it's that we must continue with a shared ownership, and uh, I'll give a little plug for care coordination because care coordination, um, we, know, we now know is very effective, very important if a child is being seen uh, by a primary care provider and they have care coordination available to them. There's a much more uh, intimate connection with the parent and the child, and some of these uh, inadequacies can be identified really early on. I want to thank Mona Tremblay, a parent and a care coordinator who advocates for children with disabilities. Mona, thank you for your perspective. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Coming up, we're going to take your phone calls again as we look at this very troubling case, this investigation by the Office of Child Advocate into the death of a 70-year-old autistic boy. And uh, if you appreciate these conversations... uh, I want to remind that it's listener support that makes it possible. It's WNPR's end-of-the-year fundraising campaign. Um, here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to support WNPR. When we come back from the break, we'll take your calls, and we're going to shift focus a little bit on juvenile justice and reforms coming uh, down the line here in Connecticut. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me today is the child advocate for the state of Connecticut, Sarah Egan. We're talking about her office's investigation into the death of a 17-year-old autistic boy. I wanted to take a listener call. Rachel's calling from Plainview. Rachel, go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, Lucy. Yes, go ahead, Rachel. Um, my name is Mitchell, not uh, Rachel. But um, Sorry. Um, the story this morning is so heartbreaking. Um I have a I have a son with disability and just listening to this I don't know how to explain my my feelings this morning. 
But my my question for Sarah is, um, is it that um, the system is overwhelmed? Because it seems like Matthew has a lot of um, uh, people in the system that could have helped him, and he seems not to get any. And another concern I have is I know that autism is so... um, uh, a lot of people who have autism this is the system is con- going to continue to be overwhelmed and what what does the government have in place to help uh these people or our children those are good points uh sarah egan you know she's asking is the system overwhelmed so i think yes well the system is always being asked to do more and more right um, but I do think, and I, and I really appreciate the sentiment that the caller shared and, and, and the heartbreak that we all feel reading about Matthew. Um, and, and I would say that um, the system can prepare itself better. The system can be more competent when it comes to the unique vulnerability and needs of children with disabilities. The system is competent about a lot of things. School systems are competent about, you know, a lot of things, educating children. But we can develop more competency around this population of of children. We can serve them more efficiently, more capably. We can recognize the risks that they face and do our risk assessments um, more effectively and more reliably. So I think some of it is doing our work even better than we're doing it now. And our report lays out a lot of recommendations about how to do that. And we'll link to that report uh, from Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to shift our conversation now to juvenile justice. The state's locked facility for boys, the Connecticut Juvenile Training School, is slated to close by next July. Now, DCF has operated CJTS since it opened. Uh, I understand there's a new law that was passed by the General Assembly that would transfer the operation of the training school from DCF to the judicial branch. Does that mean it will be a smooth transition? And what happens to the teens who may need a secure placement once that training school closes? To help answer those questions and more, Josh Kovner joins me now. He's with the Hartford Current. Josh, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Lucy. Can you explain to us what's happening with the training school? Uh, The focus is on about 250 kids at any given moment. Those are the kids that were adjudicated or are adjudicated juvenile delinquent, and they're committed to the uh, Department of Children and Families, the other 9,000 kids a year go to judicial. So Sarah and the rest of the professionals call these kids the deep end kids. And uh, uh, and the population's been decreasing significantly over the last few years. What, 50 boys are there now? The population in the juvenile jail has mm-hmm. been decreasing. They're, they run steady at about 250, but there are the programs that the other 200 can go to outside of the locked facility. Can you explain to our listeners, because I thought it was pretty confusing with all of the uh, the, the late uh, budget wrangling going on with the General Assembly, how there was a transfer of who's going to be operating the school to the, to the judicial branch. Can you walk us through that? Well, they, uh, they're the big end of the funnel. They get the 9,000 or so kids a year. Only the deep end kids were handled by uh, DCF. So they're going over to Judicial, and um, Judicial is putting out uh, requests for uh, a couple, two, three, maybe smaller locked facilities, which has been on the radar when this was built by the disgraced Roland administration. Mm -hmm. When REL came on, she said, okay, let's close it and let's have some regional smaller locked facilities with intense mental health. 
but the political will to make that happen fizzled, mm -hmm. and we were left with another decade of the juvenile jail, which was built with 250 cells. Uh, now most of them are papered over with uh, art murals. Now, you wrote a story recently uh, that raises questions about uh, what happens after January 1st. DCF uh, Commissioner Joette Katz kind of unilaterally, defensively, and within her authority, closed admissions starting January 1. So there's at least a six-month period where even judges don't know where the kids who do need that locked uh, program for a time to stabilize, what will happen to them. Uh, Sarah Egan is with us again, the child advocate for the state of Connecticut. Um, and Josh laid this out uh, pretty well in terms of this is a small number of youth that are adjudicated to the training school. Uh, but when we talk about these kids, let's talk about their backgrounds and you know what is common for many of them and why they're they're even there. Right. So so what we know, Josh is right. You know, these are kids who have um, found their way into the deep end of the pool. Um, what we know from reviewing um, their lives um, and the work that the state has done recently to, to review their lives is that they often have um, s significant histories of child maltreatment. They have very fractured um, educational histories. They typically, children typically are diagnosed with um, mental, significant mental health uh, disorders and identified as having treatment needs. Many of them have... Um, Many children have uh, more limited intellectual functioning. Even a recent study found looking at some of the kids at CJTS that several of the kids looked at had borderline intellectual functioning and or neurodevelopmental um, uh, deficits. Um, and so, you know, I think that we have to know that that we have to know who these kids are in order to be able to serve them more and their families more capably, right? Many of the kids at CJTS have, have had a history of having incarcerated parents have a parent with their own substance abuse and mental health issues. So um, this is a population that a lot of states are trying to get better at serving. And I think the one thing we do know um, is that larger scale, more juvenile prison-like institutions um, around the country have not been effective in reducing, um, in improving public safety and increasing juvenile rehabilitation, and that the movement around the country has been to um, you know, smaller community-based uh, programs and more individualized treatment as a way to improve public safety. Uh, Josh Kovner with the Hartford Current. Um, is there a concern that um, after January 1st, if a child is adjudicated delinquent, they need a secure placement, there is no room at a particular program in Connecticut, could they be sent out of state? That's what uh, the public defender said at a recent meeting, uh, concerned about out-of-state and concerned about perhaps more adult tran transfers to adult court when it wouldn't be absolutely necessary. Uh, detention, ju judicial branch runs detention centers. They're supposed to be short-term, two weeks or less, but Martha Stone, Sarah's partner uh, from another life, um, it will tell you that uh, if you don't watch it real close, it gets longer and it stacks up and they don't have programs in there and the kids come out and uh, they come out like they went in. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, I'm, I guess what I'm having trouble understanding is uh, we, know, we know that Governor Malloy, back in late 2015, said that he wanted the training school to be closed by July 1st, 2018. And now we're hearing through your reporting, Josh, that the judicial branch may not be ready for these transfers, and we don't know where the, the youth will be placed. It's not like this was coming out of nowhere. 
the the juvenile jail has been nothing but a light ro- lightning rod of controversy. It's been mm-hmm. difficult to run. Uh, half a billion dollars probably has been spent. Uh, the videos that were released uh, showing that restraint was not the last resort but the first resort. There were prone uh, restraints that are prohibited by uh, for private providers, but DCF was using them. Then they stopped using prone restraints. So it's not the only thing that... Uh, has kind of backed up uh, to a deadline. Uh, Sarah Egan, it was your report into re- restraints and seclusion that Josh is referencing that really mm. got a lot of attention on what was going on within uh, the training school. You know, what's your reaction to, again, we're getting close to this deadline and there still seems to be a lot, it's in limbo. Right. So I think that <laughs> I think we have a lot of, of work we still need to do, right? And there, I do know there's a lot of uh, really good people working on this. Um, you know, right now behind the scenes, there's a lot of folks meeting from um, OPM, the judicial branch, DCF, people trying to roll up their sleeves and say, how are we going to stretch the infrastructure we've got in the time that we're living in to be able to serve this small but important number of children uh, more capably? Um, so that work is unfolding literally as we speak. Today, there's actually a meeting. Today's Thursday, right, at the legislature, uh, the Juvenile Justice Justice Policy and Oversight Committee meeting. Um, I, I would bet that this is going to be a continued topic of discussion. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that bring a lot of expertise and a lot of will and a lot of engagement to the table. Um, we're going to have to stretch our infrastructure here to meet the, the, the needs of children in their communities. And, you know, I think people have a lot of open questions right now. Um, and hopefully we'll continue to, to, to put those answers on the table. Uh, We're talking about the future of the Connecticut Juvenile Training School with Sarah Egan, the child advocate for the state of Connecticut. Also, Josh Kovner, reporter at the Hartford Current. If you have a question or comment, 860-275-7266. I wanted to go back to something you said, Josh, um, you know, with uh, this uh, plan that was supposed to be in place to close the training school. Again, there's lots of discussion on trying to find alternative interventions in the community, uh, possibly a a secure or locked facility for uh, the small amount of youth that may need it. But does NIMBY play a part in this, that the communities don't want this facility or smaller unit in their community? As usual, you put your finger on it. When Governor Rell said close it and make smaller places sounds easy, but Bridgeport screamed because Bridgeport has more than its share. So do a lot of other places, and they couldn't cite one. Sarah? So, yeah, I think these are part of the challenges is how do you build the infrastructure, right? And a lot of this has to do with how do we engage our communities? You know, kids come from their communities, right? And so to be able to, to part of the conversation we have to have, it's the same, some way similar to the conversation Connecticut had with its communities in raising the age of juvenile court jurisdiction from 16 to 18, right? And the fears were that the courts would be flooded, that, um, you know, that this was a change Connecticut couldn't handle, that we, we were one of the last states in the country to make that change. Um, you know, and the fears didn't bear fruit. And I think the conversation we have to have with our, you know, with our communities and in our communities is that uh, juvenile jails um, and, and do not, uh, do not Im- improve public safety, mm-hmm. but that some of these more community-based uh, opportunities may, that wrap around with care coordination may, um, and that, that the, the people at the legislature and others who are working on these changes and committed to reform are committed to reform to improve public safety. Not to reduce it, but to improve it. And I think that that's the, that's the, the ball everybody's keeping an eye on, um, and, and, and we'll continue to talk about that. Um, Josh Kovner, what's the latest that you've heard from the judicial branch of how they're going to handle this transfer? 
they said the heavy lift is uh, designing and contracting for the secure facility or facilities. They're pretty capable over there. Uh, DCF is capable in, on some fronts as well, um, but judicial has their issues. There, there was one or two uh, workers charged with uh, malfeasance recently, uh, but uh, Gary Roberge and Brian Hill and uh, use best practices, and I think they'll they'll get as close as someone can get to to at least building the framework uh, on time. Except it's their time. Their time title is July. Joette uh, Katz of DCF closed admissions in January. Uh, a judge, uh, Bernadette Conway, was uh, didn't think that that was any small issue to to deal with. Um, juvenile arrests are down. There's fewer ki- young people in even the adult uh, j- jail at Manson Youth in Cheshire takes the younger uh, adults. Uh, there used to be 150 kids at uh, the juvenile jail now there's like 48 mm-hmm. so it, it it's smaller group that needs uh, a locked facility but when they need it they need it I want to thank Josh Kodner for coming in, reporter at the Hartford Current. Um, you're one of the few reporters that cover juvenile justice uh, issues, and we appreciate your perspective, Josh, as always. Thank you. And child advocate Sarah Egan, uh, we want to thank you for coming in and talking about this latest investigation uh, into this uh, very tragic story uh, involving a 17-year-old boy with autism. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Lucy. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Special thanks to producer Carmen Baskoff and technical producer Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you appreciate the conversations we have here on where we live, the programs on WMPR, um, going past the headlines with analysis information um, that help you understand what's happening here in Connecticut, we ask you for your support. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how. And thanks again for listening. <laughs>